And this is episode number 327 with Stacy London. Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, former pro athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin. Welcome everyone to this very special interview with the one and only Stacy London. I'm super excited about this episode and I hope you'll share it out with your friends and let them know that you're listening to it by sending out the link lewishouse.com slash 327. That's where they can listen to it right now. And you can also watch the full video interview back at lewishouse.com slash 327. And check out the full show notes that we cover from today's episode. Now, Stacey London has become a good friend of mine over the last year, and she started her career as a fashion editor at Vogue and transitioned into being a stylist for celebrities and designers. She moved into television by co-hosting What Not to Wear, on TLC with Clinton Kelly, and doing fashion reporting for Access Hollywood, The Early Show, and The Today Show. And now she's on The View. And we talked about a lot of different things in this episode, including the difference between style and fashion and what that actually means. We also talked about her struggles with body image pre-TV and what she went through as a child with different eating disorders. We also talked about how long it took for her to get casted on her TV show and that entire process and how she actually almost didn't get casted for the show. We also talk about how she got that gray streak in her hair, and how she turned essentially a trauma into what is now considered her trademark. We talk about the challenges she faced from switching from print to television in the fashion world, and so much more in this episode with the one, the only, Stacey London. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Well, welcome everyone to the School of Greatness podcast. I'm very excited about our guest today. We have Stacey London in the house. Hello. Thanks it's so, so good to be here. Thanks so much. We're here at Nick Onkin's studio. Yes, we are. Hanging out. And uh, I'm very excited because I met you through Nick. 
when was this, like eight months ago or something? No, it was almost a year ago. It was was actually, it a year ago? Yes. It was springtime yes, at Soho House Yes, it was springtime at Soho House outside. I met you. Was it a I year think ago? In, yeah, it was almost, it was June. Wow. Yeah, okay. almost yeah. a year ago. Okay. Feels like so much longer. Right. <laughs> yeah. But uh, we finally got to do this interview. I've been wanting to interview for a while, so I'm glad we got to make it happen. Well, I, and... I feel very honored. You have very fancy, important people oh, on I? your podcast. You do. Mm. Uh, Nick Onkin's been on it. Tony Robbins has been on it. Yeah. I mean, I, you know. No pressure. I, I, no pressure. No pressure. I, I feel like I'm in good company. You're a great company, yes. Yeah. Um, well, I'm glad that we're here. And I wanted to ask you the first question. We had a really intimate dinner mm. about a few months ago that a lot of things were uncovered. We don't have to go that far. It wasn't even a few months ago. When was it? It was like a month ago no, or two about, months ago. About two months ago, yeah. Yeah. But, um, I would just like to tell everybody at home, if you don't know Louis, um, Satya, <laughs> has she been on your podcast? No, yeah. Satya Twina um, is a hat designer that we are all friendly with. And Satya and I came to the conclusion that you are like this truth seeker. <laughs> You're like a missile. Yes. You're like this missile bomb. Mm. Um, and one of the things that's so interesting is this dinner that you're referring mm. to, like within half an hour of like sitting down to eat sausage, <laughs> I was like basically in a pool of tears. <laughs> but like not for any bad reason. Right. You were just like, you like to get to the heart mm. of things yes. um, in a way that most people don't do. I mean, mm. you're very intense. Mm. Am I? Hopefully it's not too intense. No, I didn't say too intense. I said intense. Just uh, in just use Intense. It. Yeah, I didn't say too. Okay, there gotcha. There was no, yeah. Gotcha. Okay, yeah. cool. Well, we were talking about this, mm. uh, my intent word, yes. Yes. which is grace, um, which is a, a mutual friend of ours makes these. Yes. Chris. Mm -hmm. And you said you have a word. What's your word, your intention word right now? Yeah. Well, the one that I had made, and that was just um, a few months ago when I was in L.A. Mm -hmm. Interesting, because also that's when I broke three toes. I remember this. Right? In and a car door. I was supposed to go kickboxing with, with that dude who's a machine. Who I'm still gonna take lessons yes. with because he machine. that we need to film. But yes. anyway. Um so my word, and it's a word that uh I'm actually I wear a lot of words. Mm. If you haven't noticed, I have a lot of necklaces and rings mm. on that have words on mm. them. Um I love words. I love them painted. I love them in jewelry, and I have no tattoos, so I guess mm. I just like to be able to take things on and off. It's your form of expression. Exactly. So my intention word was almost. And a lot of people see that as um, something sort of defeatist. Mm -hmm. Like almost, you almost got there. Almost, <laughs> almost you know, almost. almost first place. <laughs> good try. Good try. Bronze medal, you know, silver. <laughs> um, but I don't look at it that way at all. Mm -hmm. I look at almost as something totally hopeful. Um, almost means that there's still more. There's still more out there to do, to see, to experience, to love, to have. Um, in any way that you think about uh, your life, that there's this sense that you don't get to finish until you're really at the end. Mm -hmm. And almost kind of motivates me to keep going because I can't rest on my laurels if I know there's more out there. Yeah. So you're not like, you're not saying to yourself, well, I've been successful on TV for many years, so I'm just going to live off of this experience and talk about that. You're going to keep going towards something else. Yeah. And I would say keep that growing. now is actually um, like a, a huge period of transformation for me. It's something where I started to realize that um, the 10 years that I was on TLC's What Not to Wear, I kind of didn't really recognize a, that it had like such an impact in terms of pop culture and B, mm. that it was sort of going to be the thing that I got saddled with afterwards is, oh, I don't know, they go for that show. 
right? Which, yeah. whether they know me or not, is sort of how yes. I get represented. That's your, that was your identity for a long time. For a long time. Um, my field, my profession, has always been fashion, and I started off in magazines. Um, my first Vogue, job, right? Yes, my first job after Vassar was Vogue. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went from Vassar, where I studied philosophy and literature and psychology, to Vogue because that makes all the sense in the world. <laughs> and um, and you know, rapidly decided that I shouldn't have bothered with college because then I could have been an editor in chief by that time. But then <laughs> later on was really happy that I went to college to learn rudimentary things like how to read and write and think critically, mm-hmm. uh, which basically are the skills to get you anywhere. Right. Um, <laughs> so, I, you know, I worked at Vogue for two years. I was an assistant overall for many different editors and stylists for uh, about five and a half years. Right. And then when I was 26, I became an editor at Mademoiselle. And I was there until I was fired when I was 30 by a new editor-in-chief. And uh, meanwhile, they closed the magazine because of her. So wherever you are, Mandy, <laughs> get going. Uh, and, um, and then I freelanced for about a year. Mm. And during that year, I started styling men, kids, women. I did commercials, all styling. And then uh, I got asked to audition for this show. And it really was this turning point because I went from being behind the camera to oh. in front of the camera full time. And that was... 15 years ago. Wow. And what gave you the confidence to say, okay, now I can be on TV? And did you ever think that you were going to be this <laughs> TV personality or expert that was giving advice in um, front of the camera? Well, I've always been really good at giving advice, even when yeah. I don't know what I'm talking about. Sure, but, sure. But, but what I do think was that um, my, my stepmother is who I hold responsible mm. for getting me the job, really, because I did about eight months of screen tests. Uh, every eight freelance months. stylist in New York City said they were auditioning. Half of them said they'd already gotten the job. I had no idea what was happening. And when I was in Marbella with my family... We get a phone call from my agent saying, my styling agent, saying, you've got to come back. You're like in the top 27, and they're going to do a cocktail party with all of you. And oh I was like, gosh. top 27? That's not even like That's, the top 10. That's yeah. not even the top 15. That's a lot okay? of top, top 27. They want to meet all of you. They want to see you interact. And I was like, look, I am in Marbella. Okay, Prince has a house here, and like it was really lovely seafood. I said they have me on tape. I've done it like four screen tests for if, eight months. Yeah, if they, they don't, don't know, me know by now. right? If they don't know me by now, and uh, my agent was like, "Okay, I'll tell them." I was like, "You know," she said to me, "That's probably gonna kick you out of the Cost running." It. Yeah, yeah. And I said, "It's fine because it doesn't sound to me like I have it anyway." I get off the phone, and my stepmother is like, "Mm." She was like, we're going to put you on a plane tomorrow. You no got to go way. back. Yeah. She was like, you need to go back. You need to go back and you need to go to that party because you're going to get the job and it's going to change your life. Wow. So without and her saying that. I probably would not have come back. Yeah, no. She was pretty like, you know, when you see people who are sort of in the zone, they have that vision for you mm-hmm. or you just feel what they're saying is like, wait, maybe she's really onto something. She felt it so strongly, and um, and I didn't want to disappoint her. I didn't want to mm. disappoint my dad. Right. So I thought, well, maybe I should give it a shot. And you didn't want to regret it either. At least if you go back, you're like, well, I didn't get it, but I gave it everything I had, right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so I did. I went back. 
Wow. And and P.S. They hired me. There you go. Was yeah. it right after that, or was it? Like no, there were seven weeks. more months of like. It wasn't seven more months, but there were weeks that went by, and I remember getting the phone call. I think I might have had a flip phone at the time, and um, I was in an elevator on my way to see one of my mentors who. Um, owns an advertising agency or PR agency. And uh, I was in the elevator on my way to her office and I got a phone call and they said, yeah, congratulations, you got it. You know, we'll, we'll call your agent wow. to iron out the details. And I remember being like in this elevator by myself thinking <laughs> like, oh my God, this is such a big deal. And even then I thought, well, it's 11 episodes. I'll do 11 episodes. I can then charge my clients more money because I can say it was on television. Right. And I guess the bigger story of that was that that first season, I had a different co-host than my the co-host that most people know, Clinton mm-hmm. Kelly. Um, and he was fired and they decided to keep me after the first season, which was also sort of like a, a big deal it's and big. a shock. As opposed to just recasting both people. Right, right which is what yeah. I thought they would do. Um, so mm-hmm. they kept me. I did sort of 80 chemistry tests. which 80? Yes, like with you know oh cameras gosh. like this where you meet and you're like, hi, hi, and you see whether or not wow. anybody likes you together on camera. Here in New York and in L.A., back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then uh, Clinton showed up one day and he put his hand on my knee and he was like, I'm so sorry, I never do that. We both started laughing and that was it. And he got asked the same question by the executive producer at that time that I got asked, like, how do you feel about growing your hair? Because we both had really short hair. Mm. Uh, So we did. We both grew it. And P.S. 10 seasons later. Wow. And they wanted more. Didn't you tell me they like... They wanted to do more. It was oh. so successful. Yeah, yeah. It was definitely um, a tent peg show for the channel. Mm-hmm. To be honest with you, I think when I decided to leave, they, they decided to um, cancel the show irrespective right. of me. Right, right. Um, I had to leave because I had a lot of health issues that I had to figure out and mm. deal with. And I was not coping with anything. Um, one of the things what that I... What are you coping with what? Well, one of the things that I realized is that... Uh, being in television, you're really at the mercy um, of the network and 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 the process of making television. Um, it's a lot of work, right? Reality TV, for every minute you see, it probably takes an hour to shoot. Wow. So it was constant. And I went from that first season that was 11 episodes to a second season that was 60. Six zero. Yeah. Oh my I mean, that's more than a show a week, obviously, that wow. we were shooting. There was not a lot of rest. And as the show, we, we were airing, we air, we started airing after the swan. I don't know if you guys remember that makeover show where they like, you know, gave people plastic surgery, new teeth and hair extensions. Wow. Um, but we launched it around the same time as Queer Eye. And Queer Eye, they were the big show. yeah, they were the Fab Five. I they that were show. they were Cinderella, and amazing. We were the stepsisters. Yeah, wow. uh, they got a lot of play. Whereas our show was a much slower build, and I would say it was probably f- four seasons, three seasons in that we started to get more and more mm. and more attention. And I joined um, the Today Show team to be a style correspondent. Right. And then I started working for Access Hollywood, mm-hmm. and then Oprah called. And when Oprah calls, you don't say, <laughs> bye! <laughs> yeah. um, even even the television network made time for me to, uh, to style Oprah. Wow. Yeah. So what happened with that? 
She asked um, you to come on the show and style, like make her over. No, she asked me to come on the show and talk about denim. And she wanted um, me to take four different women who were all size 10, all different heights, all different body shapes, and find the perfect jeans for them. And then she wanted to be the fifth. So, and I wore a zillion different kinds of jeans, you know, everything from right. bell bottoms to like skinny peg jeans. Like I just, I was like, I'll display everything. Wow. Um, and dressing these four women was actually really interesting to me because they all were a size 10, but they all were so different, different ages and they carried their weight differently. So that was like real education. I thought it was a very smart way to show how to wear jeans well. Mm. But in the, uh, in the time that I had to fit Oprah in jeans, which was about half an hour Mm. in between her shooting shows, uh, I had, hundreds of pairs of jeans i was and i was wearing a leather jacket that was almost sopping wet by the time i was done shooting with her and i had the driest like i had no skin <laughs> left because i was so like you wanted her to look great well i was like if i don't get her in the right jeans yeah. i will i don't have a career i mean i will i will i will be off the planet earth pretty much right uh but it all worked out pretty well wow yeah that one that one did a lot for me uh, yeah yeah what was yeah. the biggest thing you learned about that experience um what was the biggest thing I learned about working with Oprah? Because I, I got to work with her uh, a few times after mm-hmm. that as well. I think the thing that I most admire about her, or and I definitely admired about that show, was uh, the leadership that she showed to that entire team. Mm-hmm. The Harpo team, I've never seen a more organized, more well-oiled machine. Really? Everybody understood their position and everybody stayed however late they needed to be there. To make it great. To make it great. There was no such thing as mediocre. Even when it came to the styling, um, Oprah was like, if you don't get that aha, that aha moment where people's eyes start to sparkle and they look at themselves and you can see how much they're feeling themselves, we're not putting it on air. Wow. And it was something that taught me that that's what I have to look for in Every clients, time. in in other people that we um, had on What Not to Wear, on when I did Love Luster Run. All of those shows require the same thing because it's all transformation, right? It's transformation, but even more than that, it's realization. It's it's and it's recognition. It's about somebody being able to see themselves differently, mm. um, in such a quick and visceral way that they believe something different about themselves. And that... That's power. That's huge power. That's power that you don't expect from fashion. But that's why I try always to distinguish fashion from style. Because... What's the difference? Well, fashion is an industry. It's an industry that's built on insecurity. It runs on insecurity. It makes its money based on telling you that you're not good enough and you need a better mascara. Interesting. Uh, But style is about an individual. It's about an individual wanting to express who they are. And it really starts with an individual self-awareness. The more self-awareness you have, the better your style is going to be a true representation of what you want others to see about you. What if you don't know what your style is or you're like, I'm not sure, I'm not into fashion, I don't get it. Right. I mean, you don't have to get fashion to have style. 
So that's the first thing. Okay. Um, but you're talking to a guy that just wore sneakers my whole life until like two years ago. Yeah, so. I know. Okay, fair. <laughs> and, and now you're talking to a girl who always wore high heels and now <laughs> only wears sneakers. sneakers. Um, so one of the things that I would say about that, how do you get into it? Well, the first thing that um, I tell people to do is mm. the most uncomfortable thing you could possibly think of, which is to stand or sit, if you feel lightheaded, um, naked in mm. front of a mirror. And you got to take it all in. Mm. And it's sort of like watching yourself watch yourself. Right, right. Um, in other words, a lot of women in particular, we are sociobiologically wired, this is lizard brain, mm-hmm. to care more about what we look like than men. Right. Right. It's part of how we, it's mating, it's everything. It's like, you know, finding the right mate and Attracting, then. Yes, yes, exactly. So uh, women just generally speaking, have a lot more emotion attached to the way that they look. So the first thing that I ask women to do specifically is to really look at, at what the raw material is that they're dealing with. And you can look at it and say, God, my boobs are awesome. And my ass is the worst. You can use all the pejoratives. You can say how much you hate parts of your body, how much you love parts of your body. But you have to keep doing it until the emotion associated with it burns away. Until you know, no matter, it doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't matter. So you can say, oh, okay, I love my boobs and I hate my ass, which means... I'm going to start wearing clothes that showcase my boobs. And instead of hiding my ass, which implies shame and I don't believe in hiding, you consciously camouflage the things you don't love. But if you don't know what you love and hate about your body, you're never going to dress it right because you'll be, if you, you know, avoid all the things that you don't like, I guarantee you, you will dress in a way that shows people that's exactly what you don't like about yourself. Interesting. Yeah. You have to manage your own um, self-loathing in order for it to be something other than what people see. Right. Right. Wow. I love it. One of my favorite parts about my job is that I get the opportunity to travel a lot. And in fact, I'm recording this right now while I'm in Mexico. And actually, I was thinking about something that I wanted to share because I get a lot of questions from so many people about different side hustle ideas. So here's one for those of you out there that are on the go a lot like I am or traveling a lot. When you're staying in your Airbnb on your trips, have you ever thought about how you could be making extra money by hosting through Airbnb while your home is vacant? If you're interested in an extra stream of income, Airbnb hosting is an easy place to start and it's like giving your home some company while you're away your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host so listen we all know life is full of yada yada like those quote unquote free trials that somehow still charge your card for something or when companies have those sneaky gotchas hiding deep in the fine print and i know you've dealt with yada yada before like those bills that keep going up and up for no reason at all or when budget airlines promise a cheap fare but then charge you for every little thing until you realize you're paying more than you would have somewhere else and yes it is possible to outsmart yada yada like triple checking airline deals to make sure all you need is already included but you don't take yada yada in life so don't take yada yada from your wireless provider metro by t-mobile has no contracts no credit checks no surprises and nada yada yada stop by one of over six thousand metro stores nationwide 
When you get a new car or a new home, your first reaction might be to say things like, oh yeah, or I can't believe it, or booyah. But what you really want to say is the one thing that can get you the help you need. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm is there with the coverage you need for your car, your home, and even boats, motorcycles, RVs, and other things that matter to you. With a State Farm agent, you know someone is there to help you choose the coverage you need. With so many coverage options, it feels good knowing you can find what fits for you. And when you need ways to get help, State Farm gives you options there too. Too, in person or on the phone with your local agent or on statefarm.com where their award-winning app State Farm lets you do things your way. So when you need help protecting the things that matter most, remember to say, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Now, I'm curious. Here's some facts I learned about you. Oh, boy. You suffered with psoriasis as a kid, right? Oh, yeah. I got psoriasis. Um, it's um, an autoimmune skin disease. I yes. got it when I was four. Um, it was just like little bumps behind my ears. It felt like chicken skin. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I had strep throat, like something, some insane amount of times. It was like 18 times in one year. And of course, this was like back in the Stone Age when they had no idea that strep throat had such an impact on autoimmune diseases. Mm. I, I literally woke up one morning, like completely covered. In psoriasis. In psoriasis, from my neck down, yes. all over my scalp, How and old were you? my entire body. I was 11. Now, I dated a girl about five, six years ago who has a severe psoriasis, one of the most beautiful women I've ever dated, but she would have these breakouts yeah. and it would be all over her back, all over her face, you know, everywhere. And I saw it affect her emotionally, it affected her confidence, you know, she was so beautiful. Like her skin was so amazing, but it was also would break out when she would have like these, any sickness or anything like that yeah, or any stress that would come out. Well, the interesting thing about autoimmune diseases and psoriasis in particular mm-hmm. is that um, you can only inherit a genetic predisposition to the disease. You don't inherit the disease. Something emotionally or literally physically traumatic has to happen in order for to it, it to cause it. Right. Um, so that could be you're in an auto accident, you get a terrible cut or your grandfather dies. Mm-hmm. It could be any, any one of those things that would, um, create, a, a, a the perfect storm, yeah. uh, so to speak. So when I was 11, that perfect storm really happened. Yeah, 18 times a strep throat will cause that, I guess, huh? Yeah. And anybody in the medical industry, you know, you would think they would be like, geez, maybe we should just take out our tonsils, but nobody came to that conclusion. <laughs> and so I wound up doing a lot of different things, um, to combat the psoriasis. I mm. did light treatments. I did coal tar bath treatments. Did you do the steroid cream? I did tons of steroid creams. Yes. That's where it finally started to work was when I was like, slathering steroids all over my skin in about three months it finally started to clear up it was amazing except that then my skin started to thin because nobody told me that that's what steroids do so then my skin started splitting like a zipper oh so i have these deep scars um because i didn't know what was happening i mean i didn't know how to fix it or stop Mm. it and because i was so afraid that the psoriasis would come back if i stopped using the steroids just kept using it and then wow. I wound up having to go to a neurologist to make sure that that amount of steroids hadn't affected my brain. So far, nobody's <laughs> been able to come up with any That's like, conclusive why evidence. That's no, Yeah, kidding. exactly. <laughs> okay, so you had the psoriasis as a kid, but you also struggled with binge eating, anorexia, and weight issues, right? Yep. Until when? Well, they're all related. Sure. Um, one of the things, there are a lot of comorbidities associated with um, a disease like psoriasis. Yeah. 
I really, I like, I really feel for the the woman that you dated. Yes. And I've been a spokesperson for psoriasis for a very long time because it, it is so emotionally damaging. It sucks. Yeah, with really no hard. real physical ramifications except the embarrassment of it. So it, I, I say this all the time that it's a disease that you can't die from, but you sometimes wish you could because the it's so pain. awful. Yeah. So a lot of people who wind up with psoriasis are shut-ins. They don't go out a lot. Um, they're not very social. They have heart problems. They don't move a lot. Obesity is a comorbidity because yeah. they just are depressed. Depression That's is secure. a huge, yes, yes. huge comorbidity of um, psoriasis. And so I pretty much suffered from all of those things. Um, I think my, my self-image and my ability to see myself was so... Um, marred by having a skin disease that it sort of, even after the disease was gone, there was no way for me to see myself differently. Right. Um, Still fought a part of it. Right. I, it took me a long time to be able to wear a t-shirt or sh- uh, shorts or mm-hmm. a skirt because I, I was just so afraid of what would happen. I get it. I um, get it because like, you know, I used to not be able to read and write when I was in middle school and high school. And every time the teacher would ask me to read in front of a class, I couldn't <gasps> do it. Oh. And so, you know, still today, sometimes when someone's like, read aloud, I'm like, uh, you know, I kind of don't want to, even though I'm able to now, but right. it's like, no, you have there. all of it. Right. Yeah, yeah. You, I I don't believe that those kind of scars go away. Yeah. I believe that you learn to live alongside of them. Mm-hmm. You embrace it. You, you embrace them, yeah. and you kind of you just you're like, hey, you're there. Right, right. Um, you know, uh, Elizabeth Gilbert wrote that book, Big Magic, and I've been reading it. And one of the things that she says is, you know, she talks to fear, mm-hmm. like, all right, you can come with me, but you're not allowed to drive, and you, you, maybe you can touch the radio, but you're never going to steer. Um, it's about having a conversation with, I love how she talks about yeah. that too, about like talking to fear and saying, okay, I need you in this situation because there's a tiger chasing right, me. Right. It's good for me. Or it's a dark alley and maybe I, maybe I should listen to you, but I'm giving you a presentation. I've done this a million times. Like, I don't need you right now. Right. I've got this. You know what I mean? Right. And being able to, I think, sort out the difference. Yes. I think for me, there was a lot of struggle between, um, being, feeling, uh, like absolutely buried with insecurity and just unable to claw my way out of it. And then overcompensating by being, um, you know, somewhat, uh, egotistical and narcissistic and, uh, you know, I would even say a bully, mm. um, to make up for it. And one of the things you kind of learn as a grown up, I think, is that a lot of the defense mechanisms that you needed to survive as a child psychologically no longer suit the person that you are. Mm. And yet it's very hard to shed them. So how were you able to shed them? Um, well, I'm, I, I think I still am. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, almost. Um, right, 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 right. I think that, you know, I try, um, I had to learn a lot of things about myself in order to um, kind of see you know, be able to connect the dots backwards for myself. I think the biggest thing was that I took my insecurity and for whatever reason, I just, I poured all of it into fashion because fashion was fancy and perfect and sparkly. And if I could be in fashion, I could be beautiful and Mm. cool. And I got there and it, you know, I mean, aside from the fact that by that time I was, I had, when I was hired for Vogue, I was severely anorexic. Mm. I was, I'm five, seven. I was about 90 pounds. Whoa. And then, um, I, in a year, 
at Vogue, <laughs> I doubled my weight. So I was 180 wow. and a size 16. And thank God that's when grunge came in. So I could just wear oversized plaid shirts and I, I was good. good. Yeah. I looked great. Um, but it was like, there was like this kind of self-sabotage involved mm. um, that I didn't really believe that I deserved to be there. And I learned from all these incredible photographers, all these great editors and stylists. I learned how to style people, other people yeah. in pictures and make them look fantastic. Like that was the skill set I learned. Um, when I was an editor at Mademoiselle, I think that was probably when I finally lost weight. You know, I was like rocking out some pretty hard fashion. And I have never been more narcissistic or materialistic mm. than I was in that time period. And I thought that was what I was supposed to be. Right. I thought that was part of the job. Yeah. You've and probably seen other people in that position be the same way, right? Mm -hmm. You're mimicking other people who were successful in those positions. And who were super skinny. Yes. And always super skinny. And there was a lot of rich people the, the who work girls. in fashion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I guess I was kind of mimicking, you know, to fit in, in a way. Um, but when I got fired, it was interesting. I started styling all sorts of people more mm. for commercials, even like, you know, for banks. And <laughs> I did a high C commercial and, you know, all sorts of things. High C, what is that? High C was, oh God. Is this you're the, so is young. This the, uh, the it was a fruit drink. drink. It's like, I know tang. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember yeah. this. Okay. Yeah. yeah, the commercial. I, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure it went out of business a while it ago. Did, but, yeah. um, <laughs> anyway, uh, Age is also something I don't have a problem with, but, um, but, uh, what I wound up realizing was that I was getting really bored of styling. And mm -hmm. I guess maybe because of that, you know, you sort of put that out in the universe and something is mm -hmm. bound to come back to you if you're looking for it. Right. And what not to wear is what came sort of boomeranging back. Mm -hmm. And the reason that that show wound up being so important, um, I think is because, Every skill that I had, including my own emotional insecurity skill set, mm -hmm. came into play when I went to work uh, to dress other people yeah. on camera. Because you're able to work with their emotions, with their insecurities, because you've had been to. there, done that, and you know how to guide them through the process, right? Well, no, it was more that I had to learn how to do that on mm -hmm. air. I had to learn to be more compassionate with people that I saw loathing themselves and what wound up happening along the way was that I had to learn to be more compassionate with myself if I was really going to be, you know, a truth talker right. to other people. You kind of can't talk the talk and then not walk the walk. Right. Um, although there have been many times where I have felt like I'm a fraud because I can't give advice without saying I'm still in the trenches. And yes. I... You're almost there. Almost. <laughs> but um, then I had this great Tai Chi instructor once named DJ, who's like a skinny Sydney Poitier. And we were doing a Tai Chi class together. And he was like, you're not in flow. You know, all of your moves, you're, you're fighting the universe. You're fighting. And I think I broke down in tears and I was about to go on a book tour and wow. I'd gained weight. Like and I'm here I'd been telling people, like, don't care about your size. If you mm. don't like being a 12, get a Sharpie and cross out the one and you're a two. Ta-da. You know, and here I was like, I don't want to be a 12. I want to be a two. I don't <laughs> want a Sharpie. And he said, um, we teach what we need to learn. Mm, yeah. And so... Being able to do that, being able to have that kind of affirmation yeah. um, allows me to do what I do and be very sincere with the people that I'm working with. Yeah. And at the same time, know that, like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still working on myself. Yeah. 
So what are some things that you do and that you also recommend others do who maybe have some insecurities about whatever, their weight, their style, just themselves as a person, to feel more confident every day, to feel more sexy, to feel more whole and complete? Yeah. What are some things you do, plus what would you recommend others do on a daily basis, like... What would you do? Um, well, okay. So there's a couple things that I would say about that. I mean, it's very funny that you bring this up because last night um, I had dental surgery and I was in a lot of pain and I had sort of like ice packs all over my face <laughs> and I was kind of lying there waiting for the Met Gala to start so I could criticize other people's outfits. <laughs> but um, but I was watching the, this movie, I don't know if you uh, ever saw it, called Trans America. Mm-mm. Felicity Huffman plays a a man who is transitioning to be a woman. Mm. Uh, And what was so amazing about the film, I forgot how absolutely amazing she is Mm. in it, but one of the things that she does before she actually has the operation and she's still dressing like a woman, she's taken all the hormones, she's had all of the reconstructive surgery except for, you know, the below bed. And this is about her journey to get to that operation. Um, but she wears this like pink silk nightgown and has long pink nails and looks at herself in the mirror every night before she goes to bed and goes, good night, pretty. And it really struck me because she didn't have a family that accepted her in this mm. film. She didn't have friends. She had, she was close to her therapist, which doesn't even count, right? right? I mean, if you're not close to your therapist, <laughs> then your therapist isn't really a good therapist. Right. But, um, you know, she was really the only person fighting for her identity, for her truth. And so to be able to say good night or good morning pretty to yourself, mm. really, all of a sudden, um, it really hit me last night how important that is to do. Um, and it's important to treat yourself as well as possible. Yeah. Um, self-care is is very hard for somebody like me. I, I've had all what of these. self-care include? Getting massages? Absolutely. It, it, it includes getting massages, eating well, working out. And that's not be, because you should be anorexic. It's to be healthy and yeah. happy and get your endorphins going or, yes. um. And to clear stress. And exactly. Things, yeah. Exactly. And also learn to manage stress. It's why mm. I learned to meditate, uh, which I found yeah. really very helpful, not only in, um, sort of managing stress, but also in my ability to uh, sort of understand my own roadblocks mm-hmm. and to be able to communicate them better. Yeah. That, that like takes a little bit of time and thought. Yeah. So I do believe in that, but I also believe in wearing like bright clothes instead of black when you're having a fat day. And I believe mm-hmm. in wearing sparkles and I believe in, you know, buying yourself a cheap, awesome red lipstick if that's what it's going to take to put you in a better mood. I I, I believe in treating yourself, but that's with the kindness that for me, I was always able to eventually show others, right? Um, It's much harder to do, I think, on ourselves. I think we are much harder on ourselves than we we are on other people. Why is that, you think? Um, From all the experiences you've had with people, why do you think it is that way? If you're me... Maybe I, maybe I should just speak from my yeah. experience. I always felt like an alien. Mm. I always felt like I'm not like other people, right? There's something wrong with me. I have a skin disease. I am double-jointed pretty much everywhere. Mm-hmm. I have lashes in my tear ducts. You have a gray streak. I, I have a gray streak that came from, you know, uh, the same time that I, I got severe psoriasis when really? I was 11. Huh. And so I always felt 
uh, different. I always felt, um, this is a weird way to describe it, but I felt very hollow as a person and that I was always putting on masks, that I was always sort of mm. um, adapting to my environment and trying to be whatever I thought everybody wanted me to be. What was the mask you showed? Um, it depended on where I was. I mean, literally, like a chameleon, I could go from like that color <sighs> of the wall to, you know, this color coaster. Uh-huh. Um, and I did that. And it's funny because it's why I don't have a lot of memories of my 20s, I'm pretty sure. Really? I was so busy trying to be somebody else wow. that um, it was really hard for me to be me. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that. And I don't know that everybody relates to that on the level that sure. I've experienced it. That's probably like my own family history and some of the ways that I was brought up. And But I do think that most people have an inverse sense of narcissism, which is that I'm not good enough. I'm never going to be good enough. I'm not mm. like everybody else. Instead of thinking, I'm the best. I'm right. so great. It's Everybody's like, I'm the best. I'm so great. I'm faking it. Right. right? right, right. Um, but it's, it's the opposite. We have this like incredible uh, ability to focus on ourselves in the most negative terms possible. Yeah. Hmm. And, and I think, you know, look, I think that part of that is based on the, the culture in which we live. You know, part of what's happened to that lizard brain, which was about, are you fit? Oh, I'll mate with you because you can run away from a saber-toothed tiger, right. is now about, oh, how expensive are your pants? Yeah. Like, do you have money? Do you have a G5? Is that why I'm going to date you? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's be, the same, the same mechanism in our brain is at work, but now we're surrounded by advertising and, and distractions everywhere. And, and so many people trying to make money selling us things we may or may not need, you know, that our perception of ourselves changes. And when we have a culture that prizes youth and wealth and beauty more than anything else, um, that, mm. that's going to fuck a lot of people up. Yeah, Excuse yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. What do you think is the best way to go about it then? Should we be talking to ourselves in a way that is negative to ourselves, positive to ourselves? Like you say, most people are saying the negative ego as opposed to the overly egotistical. Right. But is that positive if you're like, I'm the greatest in the world? No, like, I mean, it's because it's ludicrous. Right, you know right, what I mean? Right. It's like so nobody's where's... the greatest in the world and nobody's the worst in the world. Right, as right. it turns out, it took me a long time to realize that. I took <laughs> When I started went out to wear, I, I was so self-conscious mm. about being on camera. I was like, what am I doing here? That I was like, don't make fun. Okay. I'm the expert. Don't make fun of me. Wow. I would not joke around. I took my job so seriously. And every time somebody would like take a jab at me and try and be funny, I got like really rigid. Wow. And it took me a long time to laugh at myself. I didn't realize that that was such a a plus <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that I would actually enjoy life so much more if I wasn't trying to, like, I was like, I have to be perceived as an expert. Experts, like, don't make fun of an expert, right? <laughs> Who doesn't make fun of experts? Sure, sure. Um, and I guess maybe it's because I was worried that I didn't have enough experience. Or when I started in television, you know, the entire fashion industry really looked down on TV. Mm. You know, my leaving print like the magazine world was the, the prestigious. Yes, upper echelon. Oh, you're just like a TV snob now or something. Well, or no, right. not even. They were like, oh. They're below us. Yeah, poor you. You, you <laughs> failed. Yeah. Right, right. So, you know, here I took a chance on an industry uh, that really wasn't about fashion. And now the print is almost like print, obsolete. Yeah, print is dead. But um, television's almost obsolete. Right, right. You know, now it's all about digital. Mm-hmm. And 
digital has created a very different relationship than the one that I had with uh, my audience. You know, my audience doesn't really know what to do with a how-to show anymore of of what not to wear variety. Nobody needs to see an hour worth of process. You can go online and type into Google how how many, you know, 50 ways to tie a scarf. You don't need me to tell you. Um, So in that regard, I think that things have changed a lot. And then bloggers are sort of Mm -hmm. the babies of reality television stars, right? They're the ones who changed culture I like to say that the change in culture went from a how-to culture to a me-to culture. Mm, we all yeah. want to be reaffirmed in the notion that our experience is something that we can share with someone else, that yeah. somebody relates to us. Not that somebody is teaching us, but that somebody understands the mm-hmm. way we feel. Yeah. And that's, um, I think, the way millennials communicate. Yeah, I love it. Um, a few more questions I'm curious about. Who do you believe was the one that raised you when you were growing up. So you mentioned your stepmom. Yeah. But who was the one who you feel like raised you and you also learned the most from? Um, I'm going to go with my mom. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, technically, um, I my parents got divorced right around the time I got psoriasis. Mm. I'm not saying they're related. <laughs> <laughs> um, but technically, my mom had custody of us even though I did see my father very regularly. Um, and for better or for worse, my mom was quite the personality herself. Uh, so I would say being raised by her was a little bit tricky for me. Um, only in that I was very intimidated by her growing up. She, she, I would say that she, she is the closest thing to true genius I've mm. ever seen. Really? She was she, a venture capitalist, right? Is she that... was a venture capitalist, but not, not when, when she, when she got divorced, she had a master's in community health. Mm. That's what she had going oh, wow. for her. And she parlayed that into a job in magazines and then parlayed that into a job into venture capital. Mm. She taught herself the Harvard Law curriculum. She could play piano the first time she sat down in front of the wow. instrument. I mean, she was um, kind of a savant and also kind of a bitch and like really scary sometimes. She, she was like a real yeller. Mm. And um, she was scary. And there's this very funny part of me that wanted, when I was little, I just, I wanted to be just like her. I just, I wanted to be a badass like her. I wanted to be good at everything like her. Yeah. She could draw Alaska freehand. I remember when I was doing <laughs> Alaska, a, so a report <laughs> on Alaska. She just drew it. And, and I, I can't was even like, imagine what Alaska looks like in my head right now. It was really hard. I mean, I don't know how she did it. So, you know, she was all these kind of wonderful, amazing, larger than life, incredible mm. things. And at the same time, you know, I, there's a lot about my mom that as a child I couldn't understand. And, you know, she was angry, I think, and she was unhappy. And I don't know that, you know, divorce was was the best situation for her. I don't right. know that trying to raise two girls by herself was so easy. I think there was a lot going on with her mm. during that time. And, um, and so... You know, there was a huge part of me that wanted to be just like her. And right. then I got to an age where I was like, ooh, I don't want to be like her. I I don't want to be anything like her. Mm-hmm. I want to be like me. And by that time, it was a little late, and I was already a lot <laughs> like her. So there's a lot yeah, of, yeah. like, re-navigation well, that had to happen. You're already 
a genius and a bitch, is what you're saying, then. Well, yeah. You had it all. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no. I mean, I know. Well, I mean, I've never been called a genius. <laughs> um, what's something you're really proud of that most people don't know about you? Um, or something you've done or something you're proud of that maybe only a handful of friends know. Well, I, you know what? The thing that comes to mind is, uh, is it was a realization that I had. Um, I was having a super hard time about five years into What Not to Wear. Mm -hmm. I was really unhappy. I was unhappy on set. I didn't like anybody on the team. I was like always bitching about, you know, having to go to work. And I remember we were going back to maybe it was even season seven. Uh -huh. Um, and I was in the shower and I was just like, I can't go back. I don't want to go back. It's so monotonous. To the show. To the show. We're about to start a new season. And you're like, I'm done. Yeah, no, I was like mentally, I was just like, and Shucked I was like listing in my head all the people that I didn't want to see oh. and how many people I didn't like on the set. And then I was like, oh my God. And this hit me so hard that I had to sit down in the bathtub of the shower because I was like, the reason that this is so awful and the reason that this whole environment is so terrible is because I've made it a toxic environment. Wow. So you essentially were listing everyone there, but you were the common denominator of interesting. So that was um, a big, that was like a heavy blow. I mean, seriously, like physically shook me. Uh, I wrote a lot of apology letters wow. and I changed my environment. I changed the way I saw my job. I changed the way I um, acted towards people. I realized that when I was unhappy, I would forget that my reactions or the way that I would behave would have an effect on, on somebody everyone. else. Because I didn't even think I was being seen. Huh. Um, and you when I changed, yeah, no, yeah. I know. I just kind of thought, well, you know, I'm here. Man. But um, the minute that I changed my attitude, that I became a lot more positive and a lot more supportive, um, the entire game changed. Wow. What do you think it took for you to get to that realization? I don't I mean, know. A, a really warm shower at the beginning of <laughs> season seven. I'm not... I don't know. Sometimes mm. I think you come to things when you come to them. Um, mm. I, you know, I think I, I had been through a romantic relationship where I had taken a lot of the blame that wasn't mine to own. Mm. Um, and I started being able to understand the difference between, you know, keeping your side of the street clean and expecting somebody else to keep their side of the street clean. And all of a sudden I realized that that applies generally in life to everything. Yeah. Um, you know, you have talked a lot about giving your best and what that means and, and doing the best that you can at any given time. What I realized is that my best sometimes isn't about a big action or something super charitable or kind. It's about being quiet and observant mm. and, and maybe, maybe, uh, great in smaller ways. Being present or just being joyful. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Neither one of those things, being present or being joyful, is easy. No. It really isn't. I mean, life is not set up to be a walk in the park. Right. It's probably not fun if it is. If there's no challenge, right? Well, I don't know. If you already... I mean, I, I don't... We would have no way of knowing. <laughs> it's never been a walk in the park <laughs> as far as I can tell, historically speaking. Right. Exactly. Um, But I do think that, you know, we are... are in so many ways, the world is um, so screwed up right now, mm. right? And then in so many ways, I think there's all this kind of 
beauty coming to the fore because you have an entire generation of people who are starting to think differently about the world and about themselves. Right. Um, and it's starting with an individual actually does have a ripple effect yeah. uh, into a community and communities have a ripple effect into organizations and organizations have a ripple effect into, you know, places all over the world. Yeah. Um, and it's the first time that we're sort of connecting those dots. So as far as we've come technologically, I think in a lot of ways we're finally spiritually kind of connecting. And and I don't yeah. mean that in a religious sense. I mean that in a, in a yeah. humanist yeah, yeah. sense. Interesting. Um, if I was able to give you enough money to solve one challenge or one problem in the world, I was like, here's a lump sum, however much it takes, it's going to solve and cure, cure something. Yeah. What would you put that money towards? Low you... self-esteem. Hmm. Um, I mean, I could say I'd love to cure cancer. But I think Low that self-esteem maybe causes a lot of cancer for people too. Exactly. It also causes depression and suicide and all sorts of things. But I just forget about the extremes of all of that, right? Um, low self-esteem. If somebody felt just that little bit better about themselves every day, like imagine what they could do. Imagine the things that people don't do because they're afraid or they're ashamed. And if you could get rid of fear and shame in someone and make them value themselves more, I, I, I feel like they would be unstoppable. Mm. How can we do that ourselves without the money? Yeah, it's a really good question. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to figure it out. I'm, I'm, yeah, well, I'm, I'm hoping you come up with a book that, you know, school of... How do we increase um, your self-esteem? Right, school, school of fear and shame. <laughs> right, right. Um, but you know, I do. I do. But think, you think style helps with increasing self-esteem, though, well, or are there other well, elements of this? Yes, I do, and yeah. I think I would like to say that I am one of the pioneers of at least talking about it in that yes. way. Um, it's the mechanism for helping the process. Right. It's. It's. I'm not a psychologist. Right. I. I can only lend my experience, yes. um, my life experience, to you know what I know to be true, uh, and the conversations that I've had with people about how they feel. Um, what I love about style is that it is the quickest, fastest, easiest way for somebody to see themselves differently because it's based on what you see, mm. right? Um, and that triggers the brain in a really funny way. It doesn't take months to transform right. like health or something else. You could do it in 10 minutes. Exactly. Whereas like changing your diet and starting an exercise regime a lot of the time feels uh, punishing, mm. right? Style, Daunting. Right. Style doesn't yeah. have to feel that way. That mm. that's um, It's a quick fix. I like to think of it not as a quick fix, like I'm just going to have the shot of heroin and then, and you know, I'm going anything. down the wrong path yeah, and, yeah, not, yeah. and not doing anything. I like to think of it as um, a shortcut to believing that you can do other things. Mm. Um, I mean, I can't tell you there are so many stories from What Not to Wear that it was never about what happened on the show. It's, it's what happened to these people after. Yeah. You know, they would leave bad marriages. They would have better relationships with their kids. They would get promoted. They would leave bad jobs. They thought so differently about what they were able to accomplish mm. based on the fact that they just didn't think they could even rock a short haircut. Right. That's cool. Um, a couple of final questions. Mm. I'm curious, what are you most grateful for in your life recently? Oh God, I'm grateful for so many things in my life recently. Ah, oh, that's a really hard one. I mean, I'm, I'm, 
<laughs> it's hard, but you're grateful for. Yeah. What's a few things? Well, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm grateful for where I am in my life. I, mm. I don't know if that makes any sense. Sure. I feel like um, I just finished shooting Love Less for Run. Uh, it was canceled three seasons. And it's not like I'm surprised by that, mm -hmm. but every time I leave a show or a show gets canceled or something else happens, I feel like it means that the next phase is coming mm -hmm. and I'm not done. And I don't know whether it's, it's the almost thing again. I don't know whether I'm not done means television. I, I don't know what it means. I don't know whether it's, it's a book or a speech or I don't know what it is, mm -hmm. but it makes me feel like I'm at the beginning of a cycle. And I'm very grateful for that because there's a lot of um, fear that surrounds that that you have to kind of yeah. face head on. Um, and then there's a lot of anticipation. And I can now I even feel myself glowing. It's glowing. It's on um, so, so I guess there's a couple of things. You know, I think there's still more for me to do. But now I'm feeling, I do feel this incredible, the weight of responsibility that really? does come with age. There's a couple things that I feel really strongly about is that um, I hate that our society is ageist in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. I hate that that uh, applies more uh, for women than for men. Um, and that we're somehow, if we're not having kids, we're somehow not useful because like, you know, biologically we're not mm. useful. Uh, that's you don't a, have any kids. I don't have any kids. I did have a lot of cats who were all raised very well, all we had codependent and <laughs> Um, and I'm trying, I'm trying now not to, um, have pets and do more things. I, I think having cats in particular made me an introvert. Just want to snuggle at home and be with Right. Cats. And cats don't really go out. Yeah. So I found myself home a lot. And now I try, now that I don't have cats, I try and be a little bit more adventurous mm. and do things more on a whim. And I don't feel like this, this pull or this, you know, yeah. guilt about leaving my little Furbies right. behind. Um, so that's a big thing. But I also, um, I do feel like there is this, I do feel a certain responsibility in terms of figuring out why our society is so ageist when age is revered around the world. Right. Even wisdom, in, yeah, wisdom experience, experience knowledge, yes. why that, why we've taken that so for granted, why we raise our kids to think they know better than us. You know, I mean, granted, obviously you have tectonic shifts like digital and mm. now every generation going forward is not going to understand like what a rotary phone was, right. but, but still, I, you know, so those things, a rotary phone. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Okay, then. Anyway, I still remember my rotary phone from, from my childhood. It was yellow. It was on the wall. I yes. still remember that phone number. It's very weird. Anyway, my point is that, um, I, I want, I want age to be revered in the same kind of context mm. that we revere youth and wealth and beauty. Yes. So I very much like to do like a public, uh, pro aging campaign. Of some kind. Mm. Um, that That's something that's super important to me. And then I do also feel a huge responsibility um, to lift other women up, younger women who I can either help mentor or support or mm. executive produce something for because um, I didn't feel that way. When I was growing up, you know, I was raised by a frontline feminist, but it was very much this you know, very combative right. um, sense of only one of you can win. 
you know, you were, I was always mm-hmm. competing with my girlfriends rather than like, you know, all ships rise together. Yeah. Collaborating. And yes. And so I feel very, very strongly yeah. about collaboration in a way that I never did mm. as growing up. And, you know, that's paying it forward, I think. Yeah, that's cool. Um, this is one of the final questions I ask everyone. It's the three truths. Oh, so, shit. <laughs> so this is uh, not, no prep for you. No, 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 no pressure. So it's the end of, uh, it's many, many years from now. It's the last day for you. And everything, every video you've ever put out there, TV show, book, has all been erased. Okay. And everyone's there and they ask you, well, we want to know what your three truths are. Here's a piece of paper and a pen. Write down the three things that you know to be true about everything you've experienced. That'll kind of be like our lesson book for remembering your wisdom. So what would you say your three truths are about what you've experienced in your life? Um, I would say, I think the first thing I would say is that life has no meaning unless you infuse it with meaning. And that is sort of the purpose of life is that it, it exists, this energy, you know, whether we're here being animated by it or it's out in the universe, um, it's, it's objective. Mm. You know, part of having consciousness is to, is to give meaning to what that, what we can do with it. Um, I, I, I know I told Nick this, that when I was like eight years old, I said to my mom, like, I don't get it. I don't get it. Like, why, what's, what, how do we make meaning? Why is life supposed to be meaningful? And she was like, you have to decide that it is. Mm. And so for me, it was this sense, like, I really felt like I was like, oh, I have to like inject myself with meaning. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know why that image came to mind. That's weird. <laughs> but um, it wasn't like swallow a pill. It was like, no, <laughs> definitely use a hypodermic needle. But Maybe it hits the bloodstream faster. Mm, yes. That's probably what there it is. Go. But that you, and that you do have to find that meaning for yourself, that it's different for every person. Um, and that is, that, that's the quest of living. Um, I think besides that, I would say I've also learned, um, give as much love as you can. And the reason is really a selfish one is that the more love you give, um, the less possible it is to isolate. And it really is hard to be great or your best self in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no one around to hear you fall if you're a tree. Right. Uh, and the third thing I think is to be kind even to people that you don't like. It's powerful. I like those three. <laughs> those, are great. those are great. Um, before I ask the final question, where can we connect with you online? Where do you hang out the most? I don't, Where should people you know, I mean, you? I'm, I'm old and it's not like, I mean, I'm on Instagram <laughs> and I'm on Snapchat. I'm on, um, uh, Twitter and I do, I try to answer questions on Twitter, but okay. more like, should I wear this shirt or that shirt? Cause it's only 140 yes characters. No, yes. Um, I am active on my Facebook page now more mm. than I have been before. And I'd like to start doing Facebook live so that I can really answer questions. Yes. Um, I've been told I should do that on Periscope you too. I should do more on Facebook live. Get her on yeah, there. Yeah, you should. Get her yeah. on there. Yeah, off camera, yeah. I'm being, Nick is there. being told <laughs> that he should do more Facebook Live with me. Yes. Um, yeah. So and Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat. Yeah, you know, like, yeah. I mean, you're not, I'm not on Periscope. Nah. But, I mean, has that, has that panned out really? Has Periscope? It hasn't. Okay, mm, so. For see. some, but it's kind of dying, yeah. Um, mm. and, then, and then your website. Right, and I'm not on Vine, and I don't have a website. No website. But you have a book. I do. I have two books. 
um, I've Dressed Your Best that I co-wrote with Clinton Kelly, mm-hmm. which is basically color forms for body types. It's just what shapes, it's geometry. Yes. What shapes look great on what body type, all different heights, all different shapes. That is a primer. Um, and you had asked me this before and somehow I got away from this question. What do you do when you don't know what your style is? Start with your body type. Um, that's what looking at yourself naked is about. Once you can get rid of the judgment and say, okay, I'm a pair or whatever it is. I carry all my weight in my hips. Go by dress your best Mm -hmm. and look up what to do about carrying your weight in your bottom half and you'll see what kind of shapes you will look good in. And then you can start experimenting with what colors you like. And, you know, the idea isn't um, to feel like there's this pressure to look like somebody else. Comparison is the thief of joy and is definitely the thief of confidence. So I like to think of style as... um, as self-exploration and you should take as much time as you need to figure out what makes you look and feel your best and also to be aware again self-aware what's appropriate in a given situation what's age appropriate you know all of the things that that sort of do uh come to bear on the way other people see you because your style is sort of like a business card that's it it's the yeah. first thing people will make a judgment about How you in the first you. three seconds that yeah. they meet you. Yeah. So I think that's very important. Then I wrote a book about the psychology of style, which is called The Truth About Style. Yeah. And that's more what I talked about with you today. Yeah. And the reasons that people get in their own way when it comes to dressing their best and feeling their best, the fear and the shame, um, the stuff that, you know, is really what, what we encounter every day. And sometimes we, we think it and we don't even recognize, um, what, uh, disservice we do to ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. You know, somebody said to me when I was doing the truth about style, how could I, she, she was a plus size African-American woman who wanted uh, to be a fashion blogger. And she said, I'm not white and I'm not a uh, size zero. I don't fit in at any of these conventions. And I said, well, why can't you be the first? Why can't you be the first editor in chief of Vogue? Why can't you be the first to do something that's never been done before? So, you know, it's something to keep in mind. If you mm. feel like you can't or you're not like everybody else and there's no way for you to fit in maybe the whole point is you don't have to Mm, zing that's good um before i ask the final question i want to acknowledge you stacy for your beautiful soul i think your soul is so beautiful and how you constantly make people feel great even when you're not talking about style but when you show up you show up with so much love and joy that people their self-esteem gets higher. So just you being in the world is really powerful for Thank everyone you. else that you're around. So I want to acknowledge you for that. Thank you, Louis. Yeah. I don't know if Nick always agrees because sometimes I'm grumpy with him. <laughs> 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 but, not, but, you know, it's yeah. more like I'm whiny. Sure, sure. Not grumpy, I'm whiny. And I, and I also want to acknowledge you for... Agro. He calls agro. me Agro Muffin. Yeah, yeah. I also want to acknowledge you for your youthful soul. Thank you. And that you're not letting, like, age or whatever, like hold you back from really experiencing the world at its fullest. I I um, feel like I've seen too many people, too many women do that. And I just, mm -hmm. I just refuse. Yeah. Um, 
you know, it's, it, it is interesting. And I know we, we really do probably need to wrap it up, but, um, in the last three months or something, I have had like a lot of physical ailments. I broke mm. toes. I had to get my toes yes. operated on. I, I, I had t- dental surgery, like up the wazoo, uh, you know, every, like I had my, my arthritis kicked in, like all of this stuff. And I realized, um, in a conversation with somebody a couple of days ago, how exhausting pain can be. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do not want to be one of those people who's like old before their time. I just don't. And and when I'm old, I still want to be young. Right. You know, I still, like when I'm really old. Yeah. uh, And now that we're all going to live to be 150 anyway, uh, I'm relatively young. Yes, exactly. So there's that. Um, And I don't, you know, it's funny, I because I didn't get married and because I don't have kids, I don't hang out with a lot of my friends consistently who are my age, right. who are married and have kids, because there's only so many times I can watch them do gymnastics or whatever. <laughs> right, because soccer um, practice. So a lot of my friends who are single are younger. Yeah. Um, and in a lot of ways, I think that that just keeps me younger to begin with. That's cool. Awesome. So final question, Stacey, what's your definition of greatness? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a really hard question. Mm. Um, I... I I think that the definition of greatness is um, is living your life to its best potential. I mean, whatever potential you have inside yourself is realizing it. Um, and that doesn't mean you have to do everything or fix everything or anyone. But I feel like each individual is so special. We're this like, you know, amazing arrangement of atoms. Mm-hmm. And there's nobody like you else in the world. And there will never be anybody like you else in the world. So whatever potential you can realize of yourself, um, that is greatness. That is, that is making the most of everything that has been given to you. You know, that expression, much has been given to you, much is expected of mm-hmm. you. I think the universe expects us to to be great, to recognize our potential and be as great as we can be. I love it. Stacey London, make sure you guys go check out her book. Is it in the shot here? Make sure to check this out. Even the Truth About I, Style. Yeah, I look like the Duchess of Windsor here, <laughs> which is sort of unintentional. I love it. There you go. Check it out. Stacey, I love you. There you have it, guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Again, Stacy's become a great friend of mine. So if you enjoyed this, make sure to let her know by tweeting her, sending her a message over on Snapchat or on Instagram. And you can connect with her and find out all of her links back at lewishouse.com slash 327. And if you enjoyed this, please share this with your friends. Post it on Twitter, on Facebook. Let them know about this interview. And also check out the full video on YouTube or going back to lewishouse.com slash 327 to watch it there. And let me know what you thought about this interview. What's the biggest thing you learned about yourself during this interview? The biggest thing you learned about fashion and style? And share that in the comment section below on the blog post or on the YouTube channel. Thank you guys so much for all that you do to support the School of Greatness podcast. You are incredible and we could not do this without you. You know what time it is. It's time to go out there and do something great.
The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 